You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition. Now, Federal has come out with a new turkey load called the Heavyweight TSS or the Heavyweight Tungsten Super Shot. Now, this is a tungsten alloy material and it's 18 grams per cubic centimeter density now what this means is it is it's 22 percent higher than standard tungsten and 56 percent higher than lead so it is a a very dense material and it has the ability to travel at high velocities and continue that velocity at longer distances it has deadly patterning and it also has something called flight control flex and that is when that rear braking wad performs flawlessly through ported and standard turkey chokes so if you want to find out more information about the heavyweight tungsten super shot visit federalpremium.com and while you're there don't forget to check out their podcast and their blogs tons of great content Hey everybody, welcome back to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and today we have a pretty cool episode. We're going to be talking with Rod Woten, and Rod is an avid fly fisherman. He does a little guiding, but today's episode is based around the Iowa Grand Slam of Trout. And what is the Grand Slam? It's trying to catch a rainbow, a brown, a brook, and a hybrid all in one day. And Rod kind of uh, talks us through how to do that. He talks about each species individual. He talks about where they live, how to catch them on a fly rod, on a spinning rod, the baits that you want to use. Um, and it's just a really awesome and informative episode about how you can go up to Northeast Iowa in the Driftless area and potentially uh, catch a Grand Slam all in one day. So, very interesting episode. I myself am heading up to Northeast Iowa, probably not doing some fly fishing for trout. I'm going to be going up there on the Mississippi this weekend, and I'm going to be trying to catch some walleye or bass or anything that bites, really. And then we're going to go to a farm pond up there and give the kids an opportunity to really fish uh, for bluegills and some bass as well pretty uh pretty fun weekend plan hopefully everybody that's listening to this now is uh trying to get outside it looks like this weekend might be a little wet but there still might be some opportunity for everybody to get outside and enjoy spring springtime in iowa is probably one of my favorite times of year just to get outside knock off the rust uh, get moving and uh, really enjoy what Iowa has to offer. And uh, dude, Northeast Iowa for me is one of my favorite places in the state. And I'm excited to get up there. So before we get into the episode, though, I want to talk about the Iowa Sportsman website, the magazine, and the uh, the new atlas that they've come out with, right? So you have the podcast, right? And on this podcast, we talk about hunting and fishing and conservation and amongst other things in the state of Iowa. The magazine is the perfect complement to that, right? Tons of great information, and it's really their flagship product uh, that they offer. So subscribe to that. Tons of great information, tons of great articles. And then the website, right? They have tons of blogs there as well where um, talk about hunting, 
fishing, conservation, strategy, tactics, and just uh, information about the great state of Iowa and living that outdoor lifestyle. Um, I know that I'm a huge fan of every once in a while going on there, reading the articles, and then saying, hey, that's something that I want to try, and then going out and trying it. So podcast, magazine, all the blogs on the website, iowasportsman.com, and you can subscribe to the magazine, iowasportsman.com, through the website. And lastly, the Iowa Atlas. And what this is, is it's a breakdown by county of all the the hunting property, the access, what you're going to find there in the state of Iowa, right? So there's 99 counties. It's all broke down. What you're going to find there, uh, public, private ground, and uh, locations of those places, and what you can expect when you're out on those uh, on that state ground or that federal ground or or that public property. So lots of great information there as well. So give that a try. Here at the Iowa Sportsman Podcast, I can speak for myself. I really appreciate everyone who has taken time out to listen to our episodes uh, and sit back and relax. And uh, man, I, I hope everybody has the opportunity to get outside and experience what we talk about, whether that's a, a local hiking trail or getting out and maybe shooting a turkey or a deer for the first time or a pheasant or a duck or simply going out and uh, picking some mushrooms or just getting outside period so thank you very much for listening and now let's get into today's episode where rod talks about the grand slam of iowa trout fishing three two one all right on the phone with me today returning guest mr rob woten how you doing i'm doing good man so Let's let's talk about trout, okay? Because you ended up uh, writing an article about uh, uh, all the varieties of of trout that are uh, in the state of Iowa today, and it's been it's been an interesting kind of uh, read for me because I am I am am myself interesting in getting into fly fishing. And okay. I know that there's a lot of uh, people out there who do that, right? Whether it's in the yep. s- state of Iowa or whatever. So let's talk about this article. What was the idea behind the article? Well, there, it's kind of a uh, a thing among, especially fly fishers, to try and catch what they call the, the Iowa trout grand slam or the trifecta. There's actually three species of trout uh, that live in Iowa. And it's not easy to catch all three species in one day. Um, so part of the article was geared towards what creeks can I fish in Iowa, in Iowa's trout country, where I could have a chance, a legitimate shot at catching all three. Because there are streams that are better for all three than others. Um, and also, what if I wanted to target brown trout? Which streams would be best for that? Uh, what if I wanted to target rainbows? You know, Which streams would be best for that? And which streams would be best for targeting brook trout? So that yeah. was kind of the, the premise of the article. Okay. So let's talk about this. Where are where are the trout species located throughout Iowa? So there's a region in the northeast corner of Iowa um, called the Driftless Area. And the reason it's called the Driftless is because when the glaciers receded during the last ice age, they missed this corner of the state. And it also encompasses um, the southeast Minnesota and northwest Wisconsin, just a small part of Illinois. And the fact that the glaciers missed that part of the state is pretty significant because it leaves all those limestone formations that northeast Iowa is so famous for. Yep. Um, if you spend a lot of time there, you realize that it's not like anywhere else in the state. Uh, definitely different geology, 
Um, you know, the topography is different. And uh, those limestone bluffs uh, contain uh, underground springs. And those springs come to the surface and become the cold water creeks that you see in northeast Iowa. And because they come from underground, they're full of uh, nutrients and minerals that uh, trout especially like. And they also maintain a fairly constant temperature uh, year-round. It, it ranges from between 40 to 60 degrees, and that's the perfect temperature range for, for any of the species of trout. So um, it's just a unique little area of the state that's specifically suited um, for trout to live in. Yeah. This has nothing really to do with trout fishing, but that driftless area, I was talking to a guy um, from Effigy Mounds up there mm-hmm. and yep. how all the glaciers kind of went around that driftless area and how big of an impact that played not only for wildlife because it was almost like an oasis when everything yeah. around it was covered in ice, but also for like the Native Americans that that kind of came up in there and it was a uh, long story short it impacted how people traveled through iowa several you know thousands of years ago so yeah. I, I, I always find that uh, that part of the state interesting and, and as a matter of fact i'm heading up to lansing uh iowa today to uh, for the weekend and we're going to be going uh, we're going to be doing some fishing in the mississippi and on a on a couple farm ponds yeah it's a it's a truly unique area and uh, it's amazing to me that a lot of Iowans don't even know it exists because it is so unique. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're really privileged to have, you know, part of the Driftless Touch, uh, the, the state of Iowa. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the species again. There's there's three species or are there four species? Well, there's three and there's actually a fourth. It's kind of a bonus. It's a hybrid. Okay. Um, you don't catch a lot of them, but they're absolutely gorgeous. And a lot of uh, trout anglers, that's kind of the uh, the holy grail. Right. So, yeah. so a lot of guys can probably get the three, but getting the fourth one may take some time. Yeah. Okay. Right. All right. So you mentioned, uh, where, the, where these, uh, where these trout are living, uh, they're living in, in these streams. Now I talked to you a little bit about this before we started recording and my, my father-in-law was on the Mississippi and he was mm-hmm. jigging for walleye and he caught a brown trout in the Mississippi yep. river. Is that rare or is there a population of trout that live in the Mississippi? Uh, it is pretty rare, but it does happen from time to time. Um, almost all these cold water springs streams that are in the Northeast Iowa, they end up in the Mississippi eventually. So from time to time you'll hear of that. And usually it's a brown trout because of the three species, they're usually the ones that are more tolerant of the little warmer water temperatures. Um, they're not quite as sensitive to water quality. So a lot of times if you find a fish in kind of one of those mid-temperature zone bodies of water, it'll be a brown trout. But we, we hear that from time to time in, um, like, the Turkey River. Yeah. Um, you know, there are sections of the Makoka River that actually support trout, but there are other sections where the water's a little warmer, uh, the water quality's not as good, but some of those trout do migrate into those areas and, and live there from time to time. Okay. So yep. you you mentioned that, you know, they live in these cold waters. Are Are these... Are these fish native to Iowa, or are these strictly through stocking programs? Yeah. So all three species are stocked at times in the state. The only trout that is truly native to Iowa is the brook trout. And uh, I'll take that even one step further. There's a specific genetic strain of brook trout that is native to the state, and it is unique to Iowa. You won't find this 
strain of fish uh, anywhere else in the world is the brook trout. And they first found these brook trout in the little valley that South Pine Creek runs through. The South Pine Creek is still one of the, uh, the, the creeks that the DNR maintains. Um, it's not easy to get to. It's about a 45-minute walk, and it's up and down and up and down. And the walk out is actually worse than the walk in, I think. <laughs> Um, but because of the isolated nature of this creek, um, those brook trout were able to survive there since the last ice age, essentially. And so they've, you know, evolved genetically uh, specific to the state, and it's really a treat to catch these south pine strain of brook trout. And they have been stocked in a few other streams to help maintain um, the population. So there's a couple other places you can fish in the state and, and catch those south pine uh, strain brook trout. But they do also stock um, other strains of brook trout in the state. Um, the South Pine have to have pristine water quality. They don't handle fishing pressure really well, so they do bring other strains in. I know the St. Croix strain is one that they were working with quite a bit. So a lot of the trout you'll actually catch in the other streams are St. Croix strain of brook trout. Um, so they're not specifically native to the state, but the brook trout is the one that's native to the state. Okay. So that's... Uh that's a kind of a rarity in itself. I was talking to a guy down in New Mexico and, uh, he's, he was doing a habitat. Uh, he was working with an, a conservation organization to do a habitat uh, project. And he was talking to me about how similar to what you've described, there is a species of fish that only lives in a, like a 10 mile Creek in uh, off that comes off of a mountain in, uh, in New Mexico, and it uh-huh. is—it's—I uh, don't—it's a trout, I think. Uh, I think probably it's, the Apache, I would guess. Yeah, something something that is—it is only located in one river, on one part of the drainage in yep. uh, in uh, in New Mexico. So it's it's unique to see how nature does that, right? It, Absolutely. It just, through evolution, it all comes down to one specific little area. Yeah. Now, you know, our are there, you know, Iowa is like less than 2% public land, meaning fishing access and hunting access compared to other states are very low. Is yep. it is it hard to, to fish these parts of the creek? I mean, are they all private? Or do you have to get permission? Do you have to have special, yeah. you know, special agreements or whatnot? Yeah, it, it's actually a nice, nice mix. And you can kind of... Um, tailor how you want to fish uh, based on what, what lands are out there. So there is some that, that's purely public. Um, Bailey's Ford near Manchester is a good example of that. It's a county park. Um, even the, the main fish hatchery in Manchester there um, has public fishing. There's a lot of land that's actually kind of a, a an agreement between the DNR and the private landowners where uh, anglers can have access to fish it only. So you can go in and fish the stream that runs through their property. No questions asked. You don't need special permission, but you can only fish. You can't go mushroom hunt. You can't go scout turkeys. Yeah. You know, you can't go camp. And usually those are marked, and they're pretty easy to tell because of the wooden, we call them styles. It's a set of steps that go up and over the fence and down back the other side to make access really easy. Got you. So there's there's quite a bit of that out there. Um, they can get pretty busy, though, during the, the peak times of the, of the fishing season. And then there's also... Uh, fisheries that are on strictly private land, and those are more what they call the put-and-grow, where they just stock it once a year and let nature do its thing. Um, they're not advertised, I guess, for lack of a better term, like the other streams are. 
and you have to know whose land it's on and get permission to be out there. Uh, but sometimes that's your best shot at a truly wild trophy fish because they just don't get the pressure. A lot of people don't want to go through the footwork and the, the legwork of knocking on doors and getting permission and that type of stuff. So yeah. Depends on how much effort you want to put into it, but there's something out there for everybody, which is really unique for, for Iowa trout fishing, even despite our lack of, of public lands. Yeah. With it being such a unique area, right? I mean, the the fish are all in one part of the state. There's only a specific set of streams that you can fish. Is there is there a lot of fishing pressure? It, again, it, it kind of varies. I mean, if a lot of the more popular streams, like North Bear Creek, if you go to some of the accesses, um, some people don't go much further than 50 yards from the road, and that's where you see most of the activity. And um, that's fine. I mean, that's there for that purpose. But if you want to get away from the crowds, walk another mile and a half, and you won't see another person the whole rest of the day. Yeah. So there are areas of pressure, but they're very concentrated, and it's also very easy to get away from um, that pressure, um, which is make, makes the stream really unique because it's got, again, something for everybody. Okay. So... So my experience when I was a kid, we would go up to Backbone and we'd go up to Yellow River Forest and we'd just stomp around in the creeks. Um, yep. s- some of those uh, those natural fr- fed uh, creeks that you were talking about. So where where do these fish actually live? Because a lot of those creeks are only like, oh man, really shallow. So are yeah. where yeah. whereabouts in these creeks do these fish live? Well, they move around a lot. I mean, so we were just at, uh, fished a little paint creek last weekend in, in Yellow River State Forest, and I can't believe it had been a year or so since I fished it last, and the high water had really changed that. They've got some bank hides that were really great right there in the campground, and now they're just full of sand, and the, the creek just kind of rerouted itself. So you'll have that even over the course of the year as water levels fluctuate. So fish will move, and they'll move seasonally too. In the winter, their metabolism slows down. They're going to move into the deeper pools, try to get below the current, and save their energy and just take advantage of food as it drifts by. So, you know, you, you got to have water deep enough to sustain the fish, obviously. But especially when in the summer when the water gets hot or, or warmer, um, it's amazing how shallow those fish will be sometimes. Sometimes it'll be just barely enough water to cover their back, and, and they're there. Uh, I've got one spot on North Bear Creek where if I can't catch fish, it's my money spot. It's where if I have trouble getting clients on fish, I'll take them here, and we'll always catch a, a brown trout. And to look at it, you think it wouldn't be much more than ankle deep to wade across it. But the brown trout, you know, the, the bottom is perfect there. The rocks are there that hold the, the bugs and nymphs and things that they're eating, and there's always fish there. So, you know, typically they're going to look for areas that are rich in oxygen. So anywhere there's uh, riffle, we, riffles, we call them, where water tumbles over rocks or comes down a small waterfall, that's going to incorporate oxygen in the water. So they like those areas. Um, areas that are shady uh, to keep the water cooler. Plus, they can also hide in the shallows, and it enables them to uh, kind of wait for to ambush their prey. But it also helps protect them from um, raptors because one of the major predators of trout are, are the the blue herons and the eagles and the the raptors that approach from above. So if they can stay camouflaged to anything from above, um, they can stay have a lot better chance of not being eaten. Gotcha. So let's talk about the sizes of these fish. Um, Mm -hmm. because you know, uh, when I think of a trout, 
I, uh, and this is all based off what I see on Instagram, you know, I, I've seen the big Browns that, you know, can be as long as your forearm. And then, yep. uh, some of the rainbows that are just about the size of your hands. What is, what are a good representation of those species? Yeah. So most of the stocked fish, they have a, what they consider a stocking size and it's, it varies. It's generally between nine to 12 inches. Um, so if you're, if you're fishing areas and catching mostly those stocked fish, that's the size you're going to catch. Now, there are a lot of fish that actually are what we call holdover fish, which survive between stockings and then even between seasons. And those fish become more like wild stream-reared fish, and they do get to those 13 and 14, 15-inch size fish, which are not all uncommon up there. Um, the DNR will also stock um, retired brood stock, so the brood are the fish that they use to, to, to hatch the next generations in the hatcheries of the state. And they can be large. I caught a large rainbow trout um, at a bloody run that was 27 inches. Oh, wow. So there's definitely the opportunity for some trophies there as well. And there are some uh, fish that have been in the streams long enough that they grow to trophy status as well. Um, in addition, some streams support natural reproduction. So you might catch little four and five inch brown trouts, and that's a good sign that that stream is is healthy and reproducing. And in some of the streams where the DNR only stocks annually, that's the size of brown trout they stock. So that could be the case there as well. So really, the size uh, range runs kind of the whole gamut. Um, typically, and, and most people that fly fish in other areas, the truly wild fish are usually going to be smaller. Like when we I go out to the Smoky Mountains and fish for native brook trout out there. And a six-inch brook trout is a true trophy up there. And if you go to South Pine Creek, it's kind of the same way. The trout will be the brook trout, trout there will be a little smaller, um, but to catch one of those fishes, it's a different kind of trophy because it's a you know it's native to Iowa, it's genetically genetically unique, uh, and they're really hard to catch. So even to catch one of those um, six-inch fishes is, is a true trophy. Right. So. Other than the brook trout, you know, it's native to Iowa, so it mm-hmm. it knows how to reproduce on its own. Is yep. reproducing for the stocked fish like the browns and the rainbows rare? Uh, actually, for browns, that's pretty common. Okay. Um, in fact, some of the, the better streams like the Waterloo Creeks, the North and South Bear Creeks, the French Creeks, um, it's almost exclusively sus- sustained through natural reproduction. Okay. In fact, French Creek is where they go to collect the milk and the eggs to produce the next generation of hatchery-raised fish. And they'll actually collect that stream side and put those brown trout right back in the stream. So they don't even come into the hatchery. Um, so that kind of gives you an example of how well the brown trout do, like in places like French Creek. So they'll, they'll sane them up or net them up, milk yep. them, and then, yep. and for the people who don't know, it's collecting the seeds and semen, or the seeds, the eggs and the semen, right, from the Correct. brown? Yeah. Yep. And then they yep. use yep. that to, uh, what, what are they called, the... Uh, the the fingers the fingerlings that fingerlings uh, yep. yeah so they use yep. that to uh, uh, I guess artificially inseminate the eggs right yep okay yep, exactly yep yeah and if you ever get a chance stop by the the hatchery in Manchester because you you can actually go in and watch them do that with the fish um, we were there one time and they were uh, fertilizing brown uh, brook trout eggs and so it was really fascinating to watch um, and, and every and so the Manchester hatchery is the only true hatchery in the state. The other two, the one in Elkader and the one in Decorah, are rearing stations. So all the eggs are fertilized and hatched in Manchester, and then once they're hatched, they're distributed to Elkader and Decorah and reared from that point on. So yeah, yeah. Manchester is the only place you'll actually see the fertilization take place. 
but you can still go to the Decora or the Elkator hatchery and feed the trout in the runs and, and, and see how they raise the trout and that type of thing too. Yeah. I, that was one of my favorite things as a kid was to go to the hatchery and, uh, throw the little pebbles or the, throw the, yep, the feed the into their, the pellets in there and, yep. uh, feed the, all the trout that they were raising. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. All right. So is it, let's talk about the difficulty of actually catching them. All right. Maybe okay. talk a little yep. bit about the equipment that you're using and then what a guy should actually expect when he goes, uh, and either attempts for the grand slam or just attempts to catch a fish for the first time. Right. Well, and I, so I fish with them almost exclusively with a fly rod. I do run a guide service where we can do spin fishing trips if the client is preferred to do that method. I think spin fishing is a little easier because you can fish with spinners and crankbaits that put off a little extra vibration and flash. Uh, in fly fishing, you're trying to imitate, for most part, one of the insects that the fish eat. Now, there are times when fly fishing will outperform because the fish will eat flies and not want to eat something that looks like a spinner or a, or a crankbait you know, a floating rappel or something like that. So there are times when fly fishing is actually advantageous. In fact, I've gone through holes right after a spin fisherman's gone through, and he didn't catch a thing, and I just waylaid the fish because they were wanting bugs and not, not uh, spinners and, and uh, rappelers at the time. So, but that being said, fly fishing can be very frustrating to try to get started. I mean, it took me two years before I actually caught my first trout fly fishing. And there are, it's definitely much more technique sensitive. you got to really know what you're doing. Um, the presentation has to be perfect or the f fish will refuse it. So if you're going to try fly fishing, it's best to go with somebody that knows what they're doing, that's been out there a few times and caught a few fish. Um, as far as catching the trifecta, usually if you're going to catch two species, it'll be the rainbow and the brown trout. The brook trout will be the third fish. will be the hard one to catch. So if you really want to try to catch the trifecta, you probably want to focus on those streams <clears throat> where you know there's a good population of brook trout. There's a few of those that, uh, if that's what a client wants to do, that's where I'll take them for sure because we've got the best shot at, at doing all three of those. Um, but again, spin fishing, you know, you want to maybe stick with spinners, um, floating rappelas. There's also the live bait component too where you can catch them on marshmallows. Um, you can catch them on doe baits. You can catch them on night crawlers, um, wax worms, those type of things. Um, some guys use uh, cheese and corn. Um, Toronto are kind of unique because when you think of fishing for, with cheese and corn, you think of like carp fishing. Yeah. But the trout actually have a pretty sensitive sense of taste and smell as well, so they like those stinky baits as well. So sometimes uh, those can be super productive. Um, generally, the people that live bait fish are the ones that fish right next to the accesses. And uh, some of the more popular streams, it's unfortunate because you find uh, foam worm containers and that type of oh, stuff yeah. too. Yeah. So it's not a bad idea to go out to take a plastic bag with you and, and take out stuff that you find. You know, look out for the other guy and, and leave it better than you found it. So yeah. That's yeah. always good advice. Yeah, it's uh, it's a shame, dude. Uh, I'll be honest. and uh, You you probably opened a can of worms by saying that. But, <laughs> but I was out on some public land and actually just hiking around the lake where me and my kids were fishing. And people are just filthy animals. Yeah. And they were, there was plastic bags. There was like... A, a, a pair of shoes. I mean, who just leaves a pair of shoes outside, you yeah, know, or, or right. like a sock and, and Ox, like yeah. you said, fishing containers and stuff like that. And I'm just like, come on people. It, yeah. It, that, that of all things makes me the most upset. And, yeah. um, anyway, and that, again, 
that, that's one of the nice things about the streams in Iowa is, is you can fish those areas if you want to. Generally, those type of people tend to fish the same areas all the time. Yeah. And they're the obvious areas. They're the deep, big, deep pools. Um, but, again, walk a mile and a half, and you don't see any of that. Yeah. There's no, you know, you, you'll be lucky if you see a set of boot prints. So that's one of the great things about the streams in Iowa is the people that really want to go out and experience the true nature, the true wildness, um, chase those true trophies. They're willing to walk a little bit to get away from the crowds and, and fish those areas that don't get fished as much. Right. So yep. you were talking about uh, the two types of, of fishing, the fly fishing and the, you know, using a, a spinner reel. Yep. My experience is, or, and I, I don't have any experience, but I'm just talking about seeing the where these cricks run there's a lot of overhanging trees there's a lot yep. of you know bushes and stuff and a, a fly presentation takes a lot of room right to prop, can. yeah yeah, proper, yeah properly cast yep where okay. where are i mean where and how do you accommodate to those things so it's interesting you asked that question because i was actually thinking about this before this call when i got started the DNR has revamped its, its fly fishing section of the website quite a bit several times over the years. When I first started, they actually kind of rated each stream for how fly fishable it was. And when I first started, I was really sensitive to that. I'm like, oh, this one says no fly fishing. I better not fish there. And I've got to the point now where I don't even think about it. And the DNR doesn't do that anymore anyway. But really, any stream in Iowa is fishable. Um, it's going to kind of vary by your level of skill, obviously. But just about everything in Iowa, you can fish with a roll cast instead of an overhand cast. Mm -hmm. And a roll cast uses a lot less room. It's a lot less likely to get hung up. Um, so if you want to try to start fly fishing in Iowa, learn the roll cast first. Don't worry about that fancy overhead cast. Um, it'll come eventually, but for 98% of what you do in the state, the roll cast will work uh, pretty well. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about the presentation. And I want to talk about fly fishing first, then I want to get into the spinner stuff. But... Yep. Um, is this just your typical throw the fly upstream from where they're at and let it just basically float over top of their head? What kind of what kind of flies are are we looking at, and maybe the size of the fly that we should try to use? Sure. Um, most of the, the the bugs. So one of the things is learn to pay attention to what's coming off the water. Once you've done it a little bit, you'll start to recognize. Um, so generally, there's mayflies and there's caddisflies. Um, the mayflies are what, what you'd see for the big fish fly hatch like they have along the Mississippi River every spring. Um, those are the same fish that the, are bugs that the fish are eating in the streams. They also live in the streams and hatch from there. So, and, and once you really learn to pay attention, you'll see them floating on the water and coming off the water during hatches and those types of things. And it's, it's a classic case of match the hatch. And probably the most critical feature to match is the size. So if you see some bugs coming off, uh, look in your fly box and try to find something that matches. If, if they're mayflies, you want to look for a, a typical mayfly pattern, and, and like an Adams or, or uh, something like that. But try to match the size. So it's probably critical when you put together your fly box to have a wide range of sizes. Now, most of the, the bugs in Iowa seem to be pretty small, like size 18 and smaller. Uh, you know, quite down to like a size 26 if you're looking at like midges and those types of things. So I would tend to, to stray towards the smaller side. But truthfully, if you have a couple good Adams patterns in three or four sizes and a couple good uh, caddis patterns in your fly box, as far as dry flies go, you're going to catch uh, trout just about anywhere in Iowa. Now, only 
like 15% of what the trout do when they feed is on the surface. But dry fly fishing is where it's at because you get to see the take. Um, it's kind of like fishing topwater for bass. It's, it's an adrenaline-inducing uh, endeavor. But it only encompasses about 15% of what we do. So a lot of times we're fishing with what we call nymphs. And the nymph is the stage of the bug before it comes to the surface and becomes a fly. So it lives in the stream sometimes for as long as seven years at a stretch. And the fish feed on these heavily. So 85% of the feeding is going to be on these nymphs. And so that's probably your highest percentage of chance of catching a fish is to fish with a nymph because they're going to be feeding subsurface most of the time anyway. And really, you know, there's like five or six classic patterns. The, the uh, pheasant tail, the prince, the uh, copper john, and the hare's ear. If you've got those four nymphs in your box in three or four different sizes, and again, they're going to be on the smaller end of the spectrum, uh, you're going to catch trout and Iowa on the fly if you've got those in there. Okay. So talk a little bit about the presentation. Yeah. So this is where it's super critical. Um, and it took me a couple of years to realize what was going on because um, I would throw a, a fly out and I had no idea what fly it even was and drift it, or either let it drift or pull it through the pool. And, and I could actually see fish look at it and refuse it. Um, you got to imitate a natural fly as much as you can. And it helps if you can get out there and actually watch so many flies on the surface. Um, they're kind of like sailboats. Until their wings are dry enough to, to fly away from the surface of the water, they're sitting ducks, and they don't have any control over where they're going. They just drift where the current takes them. So when you have your fly on the water, you want to imitate that, which sounds pretty easy, but you got to think that you've got a fly that's tied to a line, whereas a real mayfly is not attached to anything. Well, that line laying on the water can either cause that fly to drag or to hang up. So it's real critical that you keep that fly and the line on the same path of current so that they travel at the same rate so it looks like a natural mayfly. And there's techniques. You can do a reach cast. You can do mending to uh, avoid that, and, and those will take time to develop. And it's less critical with nymphs than it is with dry flies. So especially when you're dry fly fishing, pay close attention to that. Now, there are a couple techniques. My wife and I have both started tankara fishing quite extensively. And Tenkara is actually a Japanese method of fly fishing. It was developed for the mountains of Japan. And you don't actually have line on the water with Tenkara fishing. So it takes care of a lot of those issues with the drift. Um, so if that's something you can't get the hang of, um, maybe give Tenkara a look, too. It's, it doesn't use a reel. It's just a fixed-length line on the tip of a, a very long limber rod. And it's a dynamite way to catch fish. It's, it's almost like it was designed exclusively for the streams in Iowa because... Um, believe it or not, our streams, as far as size, uh, are very similar to the stream, mountain streams of Japan. So they've got the perfect reach, the perfect presentation. So there's and no there's reel. Another... It's almost like a bamboo pole. Yeah. It is, yeah, similar to that. Yeah, they telescope down. They're actually great if you like to take a fly rod on your horse or in your motorcycle or in the backpack because they pack very easily. And the amount of tackle required for them is very minimal. Yeah. And yeah. you just kind of whip the line. You kind of whip the line where you yeah, want it to so... go. It's a little different technique than the overhead cast for traditional fly gear. Uh, most people find it easier to cast. And truthfully, with Tenkara, I like to say there's no wrong way to cast it. I mean, there are a couple ways. When I first started Tenkara uh, fishing, I had trouble getting the fly past my feet, you know. Um, but I kind of figured out what I was doing, and the roll cast also works very well with Tenkara. So um, if you're having really struggling with the overhead cast with traditional gear, you can give Tenkara a try, too, because it, it helps with that as well. Right. Yeah. So that's the that's the presentation. Um, are there a variety of colors 
like you know like for for bass fishing or bluegill or whatever maybe they're not so interested in in chartreuse so let's go to hot pink right. or let's go to silver right. or let's go to black or whatever yeah yeah uh there are i, I find that matching the size is more critical um so like for example for example early in the spring the blue wing olives hatch in iowa and there for a period of time the fish are feeding very heavily on a blue wing olive uh, mayfly and if you ever look at the tide blue wing olive fly it's got an olive body and blue tinted wings and to look at like a size 20 blue wing olive you're like really can a trout really see the color on that and sometimes they can sometimes they can't but a lot of times if i've got a similar sized adams which is a little different coloring but still the same uh, basic size i can catch them on that too so color does play a role but it's not quite as critical as matching the size now there are certain colors that i really like um, for Iowa, and especially when I'm nymph fishing, because when I'm nymph fishing, I want to try to get a little more visibility, especially if the water's a little stained, because you're below the surface of the water. I like pinks and purples a lot. A lot of my nymphs, if you look through the box, there's pinks and purples in there. In fact, one of my favorite patterns, it's kind of a classic Midwest pattern, it's called the pink squirrel. And it's just a little nymph, it's got like brown squirrel dubbing on the tail end, and then up around the head is a, a, a patch of pink dubbing. And if you look at it, it looks kind of like a pink-headed squirrel, so you can see where the name comes from. But um, most of the time, when I have a nymph, or 75% of the time when I have a nymph tied on, it's a pink squirrel. And okay. it works dynamite here in the Midwest. Um, but I like natural colors, too. The, the hare's ear, which is probably my next most popular uh, nymph that I fish with, it's just kind of a gray, uh, I think like rabbit fur. It's kind of that same color, too. But it looks uh, it's a dead ringer for a Hendrickson nymph. Um, when it's in the water. So that's we've got lots and lots of Hendrix Indians out there, and so that's why that one's so effective for us as well. Okay. Now, same same approach for all three species? Yeah, probably the biggest difference between the species is where they're located in the streams. Um, browns tend to like to hide like in root balls of trees and undercut edges. Now, that doesn't mean you won't catch rainbows out of those places too, but the browns are a little more... Uh, angry i guess and aggressive they're a little bit more of an ambush predator so if you can find those spots where they might be hiding under a log or uh, again in a root ball of a tree um drift by those a lot of times you'll grab uh, an angry an angry brown trout will come out and grab your fly as it drifts by um rainbows i kind of catch more in the pools uh in the rocky sections and a lot of times i'll have browns mixed right in with them too but the, the rainbows seem to be more prone to those areas and the the brook trout kind of drift in between so it's really more of a, an issue of what kind of features you're fishing um, that kind of help determine what kind of fish might be there. Got you. Yeah. All right, so let's finish up with the the spinner uh, presentation. Obviously, yep. casting's uh, pretty self-explanatory on that yep. from, from that end. But talk about the presentation for the uh, for your you know when you I know you're a fly fisher, but yep. if a if a client of yours can't do that, uh, yep. talk to us about that. Yeah, so and and spin fishing really shines when you're fishing those really deep holes. A lot of times, that's where the really big fish are, and they're clearing out the bottom. And it's hard to get down to those fish with fly fly tackle. Um, so definitely, you want to fish those. And those are the ones where it's going to be easier to cast for a, a spin fisherman anyway, because they'll be able to throw it up at the top end of the hole and drag it through there. And um, don't be afraid to once you cast to stop and let it sink to get it to the proper depth. Um, sometimes I'll count 
you know, there's a six count this time. I mean, it'll take a little experimentation to find out how many, how many, how deep you have to count to get it to the depth you want. But once you find that, fish that depth. And really, spin tackle, you're relying on the, the lure itself, the flash, and the vibration to attract the fish. So a lot of times, it's more of a reaction strike. Um, you, you know, when you're fly fishing, you want to get the, the fly to drift through those feeding lanes. With spin tackle, that's not nearly as critical because you're actually going to draw the fish to that lure with that flash of vibration. So it's not as critical that you drag it through those feeding uh, lanes. Um, you can just drag it through general areas of open, of you know, vast areas of water, and the fish will come to it because it's more of a reactionary. They're angry or they're chasing a predator, or a prey species of bait fish. So it's a little different uh, thought process there too. Okay. Um... And then as far as bait's concerned, and you kind of mentioned cheese and marshmallows, but is there anything yep. else that uh, really w- works well? I mean, are we talking crankbaits like you would use for bass or just smaller, a smaller version of that? Yeah, I tend to, to stay like to a size one or two uh, original floating Rapala or the jointed Rapalas. Those are real popular. There's a couple of companies that make small crankbaits specifically for trout. And usually if you go to the Walmart in any town that has a trout stream, you'll find some of those. Uh, spoons are also a very good option. Cast masters. Uh, my brother spin fishes for trout and just kills them on the cast master spoons. And they're the small, I think like a 12th ounce, um, kind of in that size range, uh, cast master spoons. And they're nice because they're heavy. You can cast them a long way. They sink fast and they've got really good action and flash. Okay. And then as uh, far as the um, the take is concerned, all right, you've caught, you're, you're starting to catch fish. Are, do most people catch and release, or do most people, you know, take a limit, or what? Are, and what are the limits? Yeah. So in the state of Iowa, you can take five fish with a uh, trout stamp. It's not good enough to just have a fishing license. You have to have a trout stamp. Five a and day. Fish, big pardon. Five a day. Yes, five a okay, day. Five a day. And that can be any variation of species. It can be all browns. It can be brooks. It can be any. Uh, combination thereof and the dnr is pretty strict about you keeping your own limits so you don't just throw them all into a cooler Um, they want to make sure each member of the party is keeping their own fish and so usually when we keep fish we carry a creel just a small bag you can wet it to help keep the the fish cool and damp and you drop your fish into it as you go and then there's no issues that way um and you know as far as who keeps and who catches it kind of corresponds with how far you go away from those access points uh, a lot of times the people that live bait fish keep everything, uh, which is probably fine because most of the time when you, when you catch trout on live bait, they're so deeply hooked that they're going to die anyway, so you might as well harvest that fish. Um, but the people that are willing to, to, to put the, the miles in and, and hike in deeper, the ones that are chasing the wild fish, um, those are typically the people that are going to release them. Um, we hardly ever uh, bring fish home. If we're going to eat fish, we'd much rather eat fish like crappie, or uh, um, bluegill, walleye, that type of thing. Um, trout definitely does have a little bit stronger fish taste, so it's kind of an acquired taste. Um, so we would just much rather eat the other fish. Um, yeah. and, and it is legal to harvest any of the three species depending on the stream. So some streams have special regulations. Some are catch and release only. Uh, some are artificial baits only. So no live bait, no dough baits, no marshmallows, no corn, no cheese, that type of thing. So pay a special attention to the restrictions on the stream that you're fishing so to make sure that you're uh, in full compliance. And when we take clients out, 
I try to steer them towards harvesting the rainbows because for the most part, rainbows in the state are stocked. There's a couple streams in the state where there's natural reproduction, but for the most part, if you catch a rainbow trout, it's either been a, it's either a stocked fish or it's been a, it's a holdover fish that's been stocked. Um, so we try to, to steer them towards catching those fish rather than the browns and the brook trout because we'd like to see those go back and uh, continue to reproduce and, and support the, the populations in the streams. Yeah, yeah. All right. Any last tips, tricks, and tactics for the guy who's listened to this and said, you know what, I want to go, I want to go uh, accomplish the trout grand slam in Iowa. Yeah. Um, pay special attention to the article as far as which streams for which fish, because there are some definite streams that are more uh, inclined to to give up one species than the other. Um, if you're just getting started. The first thing is just get out there and do it. There's so many people that don't even realize we have the driftless region in Iowa and those trout and have never been up there. And I remember my first few trips up there, I was blown away. It's so beautiful, the geology, the fish, you know, the water. And don't get frustrated. It's not an easy fish to catch, especially like when we were up there last weekend, the water's low, so it's very clear. The fish are very spooky. It's hard to get onto them. So you really had to kind of pick your battles as far as where you wanted to fish and which fish you wanted to target. But keep trying, and uh, especially if you want to fly fish, hook up with somebody that's done it before and let them show you the ropes because otherwise it's a very steep learning curve, um, you know, before you get that first fish. But don't get frustrated. It's a lot of fun, and it's super addictive. So once you get the hang of it, you'll be going back time after time. Awesome. Well, I tell you what, man, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for dropping some insight on the uh, – on the Iowa Grand Slam, a trout. Have you accomplished the Grand Slam? Yeah, we catch a couple Grand Slams every year um, and maybe one or two uh, tiger trout every year, which is that fourth hybrid species. So, And that's between what, brook and rainbow? Brook and brown. Brook, yep. brook and brown. And what's the color coloration on that? Uh, it looks like a brook trout, although the, uh, the, the worm-like markings on the brook trout are much more pronounced. Um, super colorful you know when you catch one because they'll just really pop yeah they've got the white and orange fins of the brook trout and uh just absolutely gorgeous if you do some looking on the internet you'll find some pictures and they're just they're truly a sight to behold cool man well rod man really appreciate your time and good luck on the water man thanks it's been a pleasure dan